Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. <clears throat> this is your slightly sick host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And tonight I'm very excited to have as my guest, Lyndon Cudlitz. Lyndon is an LGBTQ and social justice trainer and consultant based in New York's capital region. Welcome to the show, Lyndon. Thanks very much for having me. So glad to have you here. So I'd like to start out with you just telling me a little bit about yourself and how did you end up being a speaker and an activist on LGBTQ issues? Um, so it's a story that goes back uh, actually to when I was in high school. Most people now ask me things like, you know, well, where did you get your master's in social work and how did you get into this? Um, and the answer is I didn't do that route at all. I was uh, 17 and I was um, – I'd already been really involved as a participant in um, an organization that worked with um, LGBTQ youth. And I, uh, I had just been going to support groups and stuff there at the time that I had a really bad car accident with my sweetheart at the time. And um, I was pretty much in the worst place in my life. <laughs> and I uh, had the staff there notice that I needed some extra support and kind of on the days when I was going to visit my sweetheart during their coma, um, I had the staff asking, well, you know, why don't you come in and uh, why don't you join this committee and how about we send you to this conference and why don't you join the speakers bureau and learn how to tell your story to others in schools? And so I just got really involved and I started to kind of lead my life thinking, well, I, I guess I have to stick around because I have a, a meeting on Friday and I, I have to stick around because somebody else is counting on me on Tuesday. And, um, and so I kind of continued to do that throughout high school and um, went to college part-time for a few years at first and decided that it wasn't quite the right path for me. Um, and time, I got offered a job at that organization uh, in my, you know, kind of early 20s. And, um, and so I just started working, supporting other LGBTQ young people um, and started training people on these issues and um, had a lot of really wonderful opportunities provided to me, um, and so it's kind of interesting. I don't think I would have, uh, <laughs> I don't think I would have ended up doing this professionally had it not been for a really horrible moment in my life that I chose to really make the most out of. Um, and so since then, mm-hmm. I've been working in in a number of um, LGBTQ nonprofits and centers, doing a lot of youth based work. Um, uh, kind of doing a number of like social justice education related things. Um, and so uh, since then, um, uh, since leaving uh, my last nonprofit job about a year ago, I returned back to my freelance work um, doing uh, LGBTQ and social justice training and consulting. So now I work with businesses, organizations, faith groups, community groups, schools, um, and helping them create uh, better atmospheres for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, um, as well as helping really my own community, um, uh, you know, get a chance to learn information about our health and our relationships and feel more empowered in, in what we're doing. So I'm kind of doing stuff for the other people about us, and I'm doing stuff for community-based groups for us. Beautiful. 
It sounds so fulfilling. Um, it sounds like right livelihood type of work. Um, I think many people would be envious about that. Um, how do you actually get to make a living doing such awesome, fulfilling work? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, no, I, <laughs> no, I feel I, I really feel thankful, right? Like I, you know, there's this kind of joke of like. Oh, yeah, I basically get paid to be trans, which is an incredible privilege um, to have. And, you know, I want to acknowledge that, right, particularly transgender communities are facing incredibly high rates of poverty and, um, and lack of access to education and housing and health care. Um, and so, you know, for those of us who have been able to make a career out of our own life experiences, it, it really is um, powerful and, and um, important. Um, right. So, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in that um, I have been doing it for 17 years now, um, mm. you know, if you count me getting, me getting started at the end of high school. Um, so you can do the math of my age now. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so I've, I've been able to build up a really fantastic client base um, of people who I think who trust me, who like what I have to offer. Um, and at this point, I'm really just working word of mouth, um, and uh, and people I think make a lot of referrals to me. At the same time, I also make sure that I'm then redirecting referrals back into other educators. Um, I believe really yeah. thoroughly in um, staying in my lane to the to the best of my ability, and knowing that for me the priority is making sure that a client has the right trainer or consultant more than it needing to be me. And so uh-huh. there are often times that I'm referring out to other people with particular specialties or particular identities that I don't have if I think that they're going to be uh-huh. a much better fit for this client. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that is, yeah, other people I think see that as like counterintuitive to a good business, but for me it's really essential. No, it's a sense of abundance and that we all win when we um, share resources with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate you being an educator about LGBTQ issues because um, I hear so many people in the LGBTQ community as well as other, um, uh, you know, minority communities or whatever you want to call it, um, the language is always tricky, but um, uh, where we often feel um, tired of educating other people and not wanting to do the emotional labor of of teaching people. So I appreciate that you're willing to step up and be an educator. Um, Not all of my listeners are very aware of these types of issues, and so I appreciate that you're willing to be on the show and help us understand because um, LGBTQ issues are so much more present in our consciousness in the last several years than have been in the past. And so my, my first question I want to ask you about that is if you could define the acronym for people that don't know what all the letters mean. And also, it seems like new letters keep being added. I know there's there was like a joke on Portlandia with like <laughs> the whole entire alphabet. So... Um, if you could define the acronym and, and talk about why it seems like new letters keep being added. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're a really beautiful alphabet soup. Um, and you're right. It does seem like letters keep getting added. So, um, you know, so I'll give you some of the, the acronyms first and I'll talk about the, the kind of new stuff that we're seeing. Um, 
so, right, uh, LGB stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual. Um, and for some people, um, you know, they include bisexual to mean anybody who's attracted to um, more than one gender. And there's a lot of beautiful words and identities that people use for that. Um, so you can sometimes think about bisexual as an umbrella term for that. Um, so that's about sexual orientation. Um, and I think where a lot of people get tripped up is understanding that, that sexual orientation is really different than gender identity. And so when I go in to do a training, for example, um, you know, people are often saying, okay, come in and do a training on LGBTQ, you know, what, whatever it is that we're talking about. And, um, you know, and what I think is challenging is that you're, is they're basically asking me to present on two different topics. One is sexual orientation and one is gender identity, right? And that's kind of like asking a trainer to come in and do a training on race and religion at the same time. They have dynamics that play off one another, but they really are two separate things that really deserve their own separate conversations um, and own separate training. So, um, so the T part of the acronym um, stands for trans or transgender, and that's, a, again, a huge kind of uh, expansive umbrella that fits a lot of different types of people. Um, and the most basic definition I can give you for that is um, that transgender folks are people um, assigned sex at birth, right, what the doctors said they were, is different than their gender identity, how they feel about themselves, how they know themselves to be, how they see themselves, really who they are. Um, and that's a lot different than what we're often taught, right, when we when we're talk about who transgender people are. I, I grew up with, like, the Jerry Springer uh, definition, right, like, there was this very narrow idea of who trans, transgender people were, and they all had, they all had surgeries, and they all had problems, um, and that's just really a very narrow definition. So it's a lot more expansive than that. Um, the other piece that people ask very frequently about is that Q on the end of that, um, and that can stand for questioning, meaning people who are questioning your sexual orientation and/or gender identity, or it can stand for queer. Um, it can for both at the same time. And that word queer, I think, is really tricky for a lot of folks. It carries a pretty negative, pejorative, traumatic history, particularly for our older LGBTQ populations. Um, so we see some trends in geography and culture and, um, and age in terms of who tends to feel more okay about it than others. Basically, over a number of decades, it started to be reclaimed by some LGBTQ people, a way of, like, taking back the power from a hateful word and using it as something really beautiful and powerful and positive. Um, and so it actually carries a lot of different definitions. Um, that's one of the hallmarks of that word and one of the things that makes it so wonderful. Um, during the rest of the podcast today, you're probably going to be hearing me use um, – the term queer, uh, and I'm going to use that in a positive way, and I'm going to be using that in a way that is essentially meaning all non-heterosexual or non-straight people. Um, so that's kind of the run-through of the acronym. The question about what's the deal with all these other letters, I'm really, you know, uh, kind of summing this up. Um, right, we kind of first saw talked about um, in terms of this acronym and in, uh, in terms of the gay community and that was meant to kind of encompass everybody and lesbians rightfully so were like hey what about us that's really important 
but then that's still left out bisexual folks. And so the B got added and transgender folks were like, okay, we're like loosely part of this as well. And I will say there's a lot of arguments about whether the T should be specifically included in LGB as well because of the aforementioned differences in sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and, and so it kind of just like kept going from there. Right. And um, I think what's, what's, really beautiful about this kind of growing acronym is that it's expanding as people are figuring out how to put words to the concepts and the nuances of their identities that have quite frankly always existed. We just didn't quite always have the words to describe it. Um, What's of course challenging is that it keeps getting longer and longer. So people may see themselves reflected in it, but it's like harder to make sure that everybody's a part of it. Uh, I tend to like when people use an acronym like LGBTQ plus. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of folks that do that. And that might also include asexual folks, people for whom um, they do not experience sexual desire or attraction um, or may experience such little of it. So there are so many different words and terminologies. And, you know, when I'm doing trainings, I allow people to ask questions about those specific words, but I'm not going to go through, you know, this like 50 point glossary list of folks because a, they're not going to remember it. B what's more important is the concept and C um, it's so ever changing. And I think that's really beautiful. And I think that particularly young folks are really leading the way in finding new words to describe the feelings that they have about their sexual orientation, their gender identity. Right. So that was Thank you. That was a really, yeah, no, that was an explanation. I really appreciate that. Um, and I do want to get into how uh, the, the issues of non-ethical non-monogamy and open relationships for transgender and LGBTQ people. But um, mm-hmm. before I do, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about just the cultural <clears throat> shift in awareness, um, kind of in the mainstream culture around uh, the sensitivity that we're all learning to have um, to, feel, to help people feel included. Um, and there's been so much ostracism and judgment and teasing and bullying and violence against people that don't fit into, you know, uh, two narrow boxes of genders. Um, so just for a moment, I want to talk a little bit more about that before we go into talking about open relationships. Um, and, there's two things I want to bring up, and I know these are big topics, so it may be hard to be brief about them. <laughs> um, but one of them is um, people often have different pronouns that they want to be called. And there is a transgender person in a community that I'm in who wants us to use um, either they, them, or uh, femme, fay, fair. And so many people in the community forget to use those terms. And so they often say he um, just reflexively, like without, like it's just like a subconscious thing and it just takes training our brain. Um, And this person feels very offended and not seen and really hurt when um, the he pronoun is used. And so how can, how can we, roll with that when we don't want to hurt somebody and we're trying really hard 
and there's such mm-hmm. a deep programming that makes it really hard to shift out of that. Do you have any ideas around that? Yeah, I mean, the last thing you said I think is really key, which is that we, we have such a deep programming around this, right? Which means even though I'm an expert in talking about this, I'm also guilty of that. I'm also guilty of making mm-hmm. assumptions and making mistakes because everything in me tells me that when I look at somebody or when I hear their voice on a podcast um, that I'm ingrained, right, to think like this person goes by he, this person goes by she, this person is a man, this person is a woman, um, which is, I think, also notable, right, to point out that um, that everything in us is not only programmed to put people into one of those two boxes, but that that's, those are the only two options, right? And so I lead a really interesting life in that when people perceive me, um, they're, they're often perceiving me as either a feminine man or a masculine woman, um, mm-hmm. and that those are the only two options. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're not even conditioned to see there being the existence of more than two genders. And yet that's mm-hmm. been around for a long, long time in many, many cultures. Um, so, you know, in terms of pronouns, um, I think what's, what's important to know is, like, you are going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. It's not good that you make those mistakes. But what's important is that you try hard and that you notice them and that you correct yourself. Um, you know, best thing you can do, right, if you make a mistake on somebody's pronouns is apologize quickly for it. Um, no need to make a big deal out of it. Don't tell me that you're trying hard. I quite frankly don't care. Um, I just want you to, mm-hmm. like, actually try harder. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, um, I don't need all the excuses because I get told those excuses 20 times a day. And it's really exhausting. And it's really exhausting mm-hmm. to correct people on your own pronouns so often. And so it's a part of why I think role modeling other people's correct pronouns are, is so important, right? It takes less, less um, pressure on that individual. Um, you know, in terms of the they, them pronouns, uh, I, think, um, I think people have this, like, big trip up that they have around, like, gen- gender neutrality and how can you do, first of all, like, that uh, people think that that doesn't exist. And second, um, that people feel as though there's a grammatical error being made. Um, And I just, just so we're really clear, all of the major dictionaries agree that they, them pronouns in the singular use is totally fine. Um, In fact, there was one dictionary that had they as like the word of the year in 2015. Um, And we're actually really used to doing this. You walk into a restaurant, you see that somebody left a cell phone on the table, and you say to your friend, oh, somebody left their phone. I wonder if they'll be back. Mm. We, already, we already do that so commonly um, when we don't know the gender of somebody. And so I think people just need to, quite frankly, get on board with doing it when those are the requested pronouns of an individual. Yeah, and I remember many, many years ago reading a book called Woman on the Edge of Time. It's a feminist utopian novel, and they they called all the characters per, short for person. And I was in my Mm -hmm. early 20s, and I remember the author really um, giving you an experience of not knowing what the gender of certain characters were for a long time. So as I read page after page, I found myself going, well, is it a boy or a girl? Is it a boy or a girl? And then my next thought was, why do I have to know? 
So that's the question that I want to ask you. Like, why, why do we have to know? And what I mean by that is, where did this come from? Where is it, is it part of our, you know, patriarchal, you know, supremacist kind of domination of our culture that <laughs> we want to put people in these two boxes? I'm sure you've thought about these things. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Um, I mean, I'll say I'm sure there's been some awesome, like, actual scientific research on why we do this. Um, I'm not the one to speak on that. But, mm-hmm. you know, from being a person existing in the world, I think that humans really often want to know how to relate to one another, right? And part of that, mm-hmm. I think you're spot on, right? That's, that's conditioning. It's like, how do I engage with this individual based on their gender? Because that's going to define the way that I treat them, either consciously mm-hmm. and most often subconsciously. Um, you know, even the way we talk with children, right? If we're told this baby is a boy, um, then we're like, oh, look at him. He's so handsome. Oh, look, he's flirting uh-huh. with you. Isn't that cute? Like, he is one years old. He is not flirting with you. <laughs> um, you know, or we, we, saw, we see like a baby that we're taught is a girl and we say, oh, she's so sweet and she's so pretty. And there's actually these like, there's been studies on like the ways that we physically interact with children based right. on what we think their gender is. Um, right. So yeah, I think I think there's this huge programming. I will say um, something for your uh, for your listeners to check out Tube. There is a video uh, by um, a group of youth in Australia who talk about pronouns, and it's a video that I use in my trainings, and I really really love it. Um, so you'll find it uh, on, at, uh, on YouTube as "What Are Pronouns," and it's by minus eighteen, and minus is written out. So "What Are Pronouns?" minus eighteen. Really. Perfect. Awesome, quick video for you. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Okay, so um, let's talk about what are some of the challenges and strengths for transgender individuals in open relationships. (sighs) Yeah. So, (laughs) big question. I mean, there's a a lot to unpack here. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, some of the things that come up for me when I think about like, and have experienced, right, the, the challenges of, of being trans um, in open relationships and polyamory and non-monogamy, whatever language you're using for it. Um, you know, what, as I mentioned earlier, we have, right, this prevalence of, like, poverty and experiences of violence and discrimination, which, you know, is stressful to navigate in, as any individual and in any relationship. But when you have relationship configurations where there are, for example, multiple transgender or gender nonconforming individuals, you just kind of stack up these experiences of, of stress and of, um, of disparity in general. And so I think that can really add up in, in relationships. Um, you know, I think about, for example, some of the insecurities that come up, right? Um, certainly, for many people navigating non-monogamy, there can be insecurities and comparison to other partners. And, you know, I think many of us try to work through that in the best ways we can. Um, But when it comes to a lot of transgender individuals, because we've internalized so much about what society says about our worth and whether our genders are real um, or what our bodies are supposed to look like, or feel like, how legitimate they are based on what we do with them or what surgeries we have or don't, um, I think it can be a really 
challenging playing field for a lot of individuals, right? So, you know, if you have a um, somebody who is a trans man, meaning somebody who is assigned female at birth, who is a man, identifies as a man, um, and he, um, you know, uh, is partnered to somebody who also has another relationship with a man who is cisgender, meaning that man is not trans or that man's um, gender identity does match with his assigned sex. Mm -hmm. There can be challenges because of what that, that trans man has been taught about, about his own, his own gender and his own body and how he's going to be lovable or not, or how he can show up for a partner intimately. Right. I think sometimes those, those, um, kind of, again, sometimes conscious, sometimes subconscious, uh, comparisons and insecurities can really come out. Um, and so I've seen that come up in a number of connections, and I've certainly had my fair share of that too. Um, uh, I think another thing that I don't think is talked often, I don't think it's talked about often enough, is in a in relationship connections where intimate details about sex, intimacy, bodies are being shared consensually with other partners. Um, so the kinds of sex you're having with partner A versus, you know, you're reporting that back to um, a, a partner B, um, you know, whether it be just because of your own disclosure agreements or it be because of um, considerations around safety and navigation. I think this brings up a really challenging question for many transgender folks because it really isn't okay to talk about transgender people's bodies unless they have con given consent to do so. I think that can be really challenging. So if I am with a transgender individual who is not out in the world as that being their experience um, and so their body parts may look different than what people assume they look like, how do I appropriately, consensually share the right information or not with other partners when we're looking at um, conversations of, uh, you know, of, of safety, of what types of sex based on the, the agreements that we've set up without disclosing mm -hmm. information about that person unconsensually? Um, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah, and so I think there are, there are so many really interesting layers there, and, and it really takes some, I think, very careful navigation. Um, so that's something, that's an example of something I've seen, you know, come up in, in a number of relationships for folks. Um, you know, the other thing, one more example that comes to mind is that for transgender individuals that are choosing to, um, to uh, transition medically, and it's important to know that not all do, um, if your kind of, you know, uh, poly family or your open relationship uh, ecosystem um, has multiple trans individuals who are navigating aspects of medical transition. That has similar challenges to when you have um, people with multiple dis dis uh, disabilities within those connections, right, who are navigating health issues. It takes up more time, more financial resources, um, more, um, more energy to care for those individuals during uh, medical transition surgeries. Um, so it kind of just takes more out of people, right? Now, on the plus side, in the strengths, that also means that there's more opportunity for collective care, for stronger support systems. One of the things that I love about, about polyamory and open relationships is that there are 
more people to show up for one another, that our definition of family is a lot more expansive. Um, and, you know, I know that there have been times in my life where, um, where I have been ill, right? Something as simple as having a cold. And, you know, I've got two partners taking care of me instead of one. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, when it comes to transgender folks, there's, again, more opportunity for collective care and also for more individuals who kind of understand each other. Um, I also think that there's a real beauty in understanding that, um, I don't know, in getting to see like poly families and various non-monogamous connections where there's just a beautiful array, a beautiful diversity of genders, right? To know that within one you know, kind of a collective connection of maybe, you know, say four different people um, in various ways, you might have folks who are um, transgender men or transgender women, cisgender men, cisgender women, you might have non-binary people in there. And so you kind of get all these beautiful genders coalescing um, through their various mm-hmm. connections. And I think that's quite, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think that that's quite revolutionary. Um, and some trans people also um, feel fluid, right? Like they may feel um, on a spectrum of gender depending on who they're with or how they're feeling at any given time. Is that correct? Yeah. So there, yeah, there are some folks who may describe themselves as uh, gender fluid, meaning they either um, feel a little bit different about their gender identity uh, as it kind of shifts and morphs in different ways, right? And that's like the hallmark of their identity. Um, or it may be used to describe their gender expression. Um, despite, I think, what my clients see from me, uh, you know, at the front of a room and the way that I present there, I actually have a really um, fluid gender expression. I actually express myself pretty femininely some days, masculinely others, but I often feel like I have to mm, squeeze myself into the boxes uh, that my clients or my family, or my friends, whatever, may need at any given moment. And so that's kind of a weird right. position to be in. You know, right. the other, some you. other strengths that I think, yeah, I think some of the other strengths, um, you know, that we see are things like, we know that any marginalized population tends to have a higher awareness of systems of power and privilege and a connection to social justice. And so when you've got more trans people within open relationship connections, you've got more awareness of those things. And I think that that leads to really important conversations and existence in the world. Um, Absolutely. I also think, and this may not be a strength, but um, a, I'll say a, a, a thing that I find kind of amusing is that depending on how, how people are reading my gender in combination with any number of different partners I have at you know, any different time in my life, people read our sexual orientations in different ways, right? I know what it's like to be read as a lesbian. I know what it's like to be read as a straight woman. I know what it's like to be read as a gay man and as a straight man. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, you could write a whole book on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. <laughs> We're speaking with Lyndon Cudlitz who is a social justice trainer and LGBTQ consultant based in New York. And we have a caller. Let's see if the caller has a question for you, okay? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Hello, Hi there. there. This is Michael, first time caller. I've actually listened to the show uh, a few times. Oh, hi, I, I have a situation. Oh, yes. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, of course. Uh, I told you I would eventually, and here we are. Yeah. So I, I have a, I have a question. I have a question for Lyndon about the the pronoun uh, portion that you were talking about earlier. I have uh, a situation where um, a, a paramour uh, of mine is dating um, a gender a gender fluid individual that prefers the they them. And the question that I have, what came up is. I was trying to refer to his partner using an alternative for girlfriend or boyfriend, and I was stumped. I couldn't come up with it, and I asked a few other people, like, what, what do I – and they kept saying, well, use they, use them. And I go, well, that doesn't really work. That, that doesn't, it doesn't really fill the place of girlfriend or boyfriend. So do I just use partner or lover? Is there, is there something that is recognized as being the right answer? Michael, I, did you mean to say I, I a, really, a metamor? Oh. Michael, did you mean that? Yeah, did you mean metamor? You said paramor. Did you mean metamor, like your partner's I, I did. other partner? Yeah, no, no. I, yeah, okay. Absolutely, I did. Okay, good. So it's your um, partner's other partner, and it's a their partner. So it's like two metamors removed from you. <laughs> correct. Okay, great. I'll let you take so, it away, Lyndon. Yeah, I really appreciate that you asked that question because um, I feel like this is a conversation that I've been having in my life for like 20 years. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, oh man, I'll say that I remember being like 19 and the way that I actually identify my gender is as genderqueer. Um, I don't identify as a man nor as a woman. I identify as genderqueer. That's my gender. Um, and I remember having um, a partner refer to me as their genderqueer friend instead of boyfriend or girlfriend. And it does not roll off the tongue, but it was a really sweet thing. Um, I think that, quite honestly, the best thing you can do is ask that individual what language they're using. Um, I know it's a little bit challenging when you're trying to say something kind of off the cuff or that you don't have them prep, uh, kind of with you right there. Um, but the most important thing, I believe, is mirroring the language that individuals are using for their own partners, their own relationships. And so, and so it's simply ask, like, hey, what language are you using to refer to this person? Um, what do you want me to use? Are, is spouse okay? Is partner okay? Is sweetheart okay? Is lover okay? And, you know, you may find that even though that person identifies as gender fluid, terms like boyfriend or girlfriend may actually work for that individual. It may feel good and okay. There are times in which I've been people's boyfriends, and there are times in which I've been people's girlfriends. Um, even though that language feels a little tricky, sometimes it just works for that connection. Um, so check in with people when you can. I tend to use the term um, partner or significant other or sweetheart um, as like gender neutral terms anytime I'm talking about people's loved ones. Um, that's kind of where I start from uh, if I don't already have an indication from that person. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I, I was just kind of, you know, I was looking to simplify things uh, and instead <laughs> of, uh, I suppose, instead of uh, carrying on a case by case basis, I'm, I'm looking for a broad brush kind of solution to start as a basis from um, without, like you say, without offending people, without in, un, unintentionally stepping on someone's emotions and their feels, you know, that, that's yeah. not my intention. Yeah. 
And, and in the case you know, that think- I'm talking about, it's, it's, it's usually referring to the person in third person when they're not around. So it's not like I yeah. have the opportunity to stop and say, oh, hey, what would you prefer I refer to you as? Because honestly, in this case, I've only met the person once, but they come up in conversation a lot because the person's really excited about the new relationship. And I've heard <laughs> a lot about them. And that's why it's come up. So, um, you know, yeah. uh, it, it feels it feels a little bit like maneuvering a minefield a little bit because yeah. I'm conscientious. <laughs> I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but at the same time, it's really tough. And, and I want a, a solution that works for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish I could give you a solution that works for every single person. <laughs> um, sadly, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but I, I think you know, if you have the opportunity to just use that person's name until you can kind of get a read for how they're being referred to, that's also, I think, a fine approach to take. Um, right. You know, sometimes uh, I'll have somebody ask me, like, so how's your, how's your other person doing? Um, and it's, and it, you know, with that kind of, like, wink and a nod, like, it's my person, you know, my person. <laughs> um, and yeah. it kind of, like, takes away that, that, gender, that gender from it. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate the answer, and uh, and great show, guys. Great. I'm really enjoying it tonight. Thanks, Michael. Okay, we'll talk night. to you later, Michael. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so um, thank you for answering that question, Lyndon. Um, let's move on to another topic. Um, I saw on your website that you have a workshop about class dynamics in relationships. Can you talk about that and maybe share some examples of the challenges that come up in open relationships around class? Yeah. So the past few years I've been running this workshop um, called um, Beyond Who Gets the Check, Navigating Mixed Class Relationships. And I designed it because um, I found that I was having other great opportunities for talking about, um, you know, uh, mixed race relationships, kind of processing what it's like for me as a white person when I show up in relationships with people of color um, and, uh, you know, how I can be a better partner um, and having other similar opportunities. But I wasn't seeing that specifically around class. Um, so that was kind of the development for the workshop. Um, and uh, if you're in New York uh, capital region, uh, if you want to come out to uh, see me on March 6th at the Albany Social Justice Center, I'm leading that workshop there um, at 6 o'clock. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of the things I see come up in that workshop when there are people discussing the kind of challenges in like open relationships and poly relationships, um, you know, some examples I think of are things like, like not being able to, people struggling with not being able to do the things that other relationships can, right? So if you have, um, an individual who's in relationships with uh, person A and a relationship with person B um, and person A, uh, you know, kind of comes from a higher class background or has a much better paying job um, or other types of, of access related things, but person B doesn't, that really affects how those people spend their time. It affects how they can show up for one another. It affects um, the challenges they're up against, or um, even the, the kind of sweet gifts they might be able to give each other, right? Um, so I, I find that there are often challenges in um, 
feeling like one relationship can't provide or can't show up or can't express certain types of love in certain ways in the same way that another relationship can. And so I, keep, I see people frequently struggling with that. Um, you know, that's something that, that I've certainly struggled with in the past, um, not being able to provide for a partner um, or support a partner or even just do have, have the same kind of dates as another partner could with that individual. Um, that also leads into um, that also leads into aspects of like desirability, right? So, uh, you know, I'm somebody who, um, you know, who wants partners to show up in certain ways for me. I, you know, whether it's like the little gift that you leave on the table, and I don't mean like a diamond ring. I mean like a sweet note. Um, but there are people who have kind of different sense of what they want for gifts. Um, if somebody has more access to money, more time and resources, they might be able to literally show up to spend more time with their partner um, than another partner can. Or, um, uh, or they can financially help a partner out with a surgery, a medical bill, a electric bill. The ability to do those things sometimes has an impact on how desirable those partners look. And so I think subconsciously we might feel like a partner who has more access to resources and power um, might be better for us or might love us more than another partner who can't provide those same things in the same way. So I, I think that comparison can be really challenging for a lot of people. Yeah, um, and I'm, you know, I'm very frequently t- uh, training my clients to um, work with their jealousy by focusing on their own self-care, um, doing meditations around getting clear around who they really are as a spiritual being, um, making sure that they have um, passionate hobbies um, so that they're not obsessed with what their partner's doing all the time, Um, And all of these skills that I've been giving my clients, I can see now from this conversation that they're based in middle and upper class dynamics of personal growth. Um, And I can see somebody from from a lower class with less money um, would not just have the ordinary jealousies that we all have, but also a deep sense of um, am I worth... um, you know, uh, if you're dating, if my, if I'm a, from a lower class and my sweetie's dating somebody from an upper class, there's not only fickle jealousies there, but there's also that internalization of, am I worth less than them because of my class? Absolutely, I think you're spot on with that. Um, and you know, another example that um, I was talking with somebody about recently is. Um, you know, I, I know an individual um, who has a well-paying job right now, um, is, uh, you know, doing fairly well financially, um, has, a, we'll say, three um, different types of ongoing relationships currently. And it just so happens that at this moment in time, all three of those individuals are looking for work right now. And so, you know, the the I don't know what it's like to be in this person's shoes, right, but I think about like the type of weight or pressure that there may be or the type of responsibility or guilt that those other partners may be feeling, right? Because it's not just 
one relationship they're thinking about, like, okay, right now my partner's caring for me because, you know, I got laid off and I'm looking for work or I'm in between jobs or whatever it is. And that's happening with their two other relationships. And so it's not just one relationship we're thinking about. It's this whole ecosystem that is affected by, you know, a pattern or by the, the totality of our circumstances. Um, and I think that's just type of thing that like, that we don't often talk about. We don't talk about those class dynamics in a lot of relationships, whether they be monogamous or not. Um, and we don't talk about, we don't talk about, um, I think how class differences play out differently within polyamory and, and non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just want to put a plug for my friend and mentor, Kathy Labriola, who does sliding scale, low-cost poly coaching for um, for people who can't afford a typical therapist. Um, and it made me think of, you know, maybe creating um, a no-cost poly dates list of activities that that we can all do because really um, the most joyful things are, you know, picking a flower for someone or writing a card Mm -hmm. or um, spending time with someone, quality time, looking to their eyes and appreciating them. Things that that go to a library and sharing a wonderful book under a shady tree, you know, those kinds of things are, create so much intimacy and connection that costs absolutely nothing. Um, so I think it's important yeah. to remember that and um, to work with with uh, cre- creating an even playing field um, so that people from a lower class don't feel like they're less than because they can't go out to a yuppie restaurant and have the latest seafood dinner. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, even, and if I may, um, even the ability to access something like the services that you provide as a coach um, can be challenging, right? You can have... Uh, a, you know, open relationship, couple, triad, et cetera, um, who they might all be doing fairly well financially and they're able to afford, you know, to have somebody work through with them. You have three people who are living in poverty and their relationship is no less valid. Their relationship is no less worthy of getting the support that is out there. And yet they have a harder time accessing it. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, well, thank you for addressing that topic. I think that's really important, and I appreciate your work with that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how the differences in identities among partners affect how we engage with others outside of our relationships. Yeah. So this is something that I think a lot about, right? And, and we can think about all different types of identity stuff, right? Whether it's class differences, it's gender, it's sexual orientation, it's race, like across the board, right? Um, disability, et cetera. Uh, and so I'll say that an example that comes up for me that I think about frequently is how we interact with families and with friends. Um, so, so we know that certainly, um, you know, when we introduce a, a partner to our families or to our friends, that, uh, you know, they jive with them certainly based on just personality traits or different activities that they connect around, right? So, for example, um, I've been rock climbing for, for over two decades. My, one of my partners is a rock climber. Um, and it makes sense that, you know, that person connects really well with 
my outdoorsy sister and her rock climbing fiance. Um, and when I think in any relationship, like whether it's polyamorous, monogamous, etc., cetera, um, when partners meet families, there are also these subconscious expectations that we have in families um, or subconscious ways that we relate. And sometimes that can happen around different types of identities, right? Um, so, uh, so for example, um, I, while certainly personality and activities play a part in, you know, whether my partners um, get along with my family, there's also, I think, a difference in the way that, um, you know, white partners may connect with a white family versus the way the partners of color may connect with that white family. Mm-hmm. And so certainly in monogamous relationships, we see comparisons, um, you know, between, uh, you know, somebody's current partner versus their last partner versus the partner before that. But in, in non-monogamous relationships, if we're introducing multiple partners to our families of origin or our chosen families, our friends, um, those comparisons are happening simultaneously, right? So if I'm bringing two people home at different times or even at the same time together, they're being judged not just on, on their personalities, their shared activities, but they're also, I think, subconsciously being on... Um, based on the way that my family or anybody's family relates to those people, based on their shared identity. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really complex but important topic. Yeah. Right. So, you know, um, so even with that, you know, I'll I'll use the rock climbing thing as as an example, right? Um, uh, I may have a partner that, you know, my family loves to be around if, if they both like to rock climb. But what does that mean if I take home a partner who has mobility issues or health issues mm-hmm. where they can't do that same type of physical activity? Or if I bring a partner home who, um, who didn't have the kind of access to even do that sport or, you know, whether that was based on where they grew up in the community they were in or financially, they didn't have the same access mm-hmm. to those opportunities. Um, so things that they may love about one partner, they don't even have the opportunity to love about another partner. Um, and so I think that, that, can get really, that can get really complicated, and it's something that happens so under the surface that we're not even aware of it. But I also yeah. think that when we think, when we think about access to, like, social groups and families and, and uh, excuse me, and friends, um, the identities of our different partners impact the opportunities that we have, right? Whether we get invited to the wine tasting or we, you know, get invited to like the underground dance party. Those things are not just based on personality and behavior. They're based on access to power and resources. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's slightly different topic, but it makes me think of when I'm dating someone new. So I have a long-term partner and I also date And when I'm dating someone new, I always ask them one of the very first questions, often before I even meet them, um, if I'm doing like online dating or something, is what's the situation with your partner if they have another partner? Because some people have a don't ask, don't tell kind of relationship, Mm -hmm. um, and that that doesn't work for me. And that's just a choice that I've made from my many years of 
trying every form of open relationship imaginable and knowing that um, I want more of a poly family. I want more of a lean in to the metamor, um, become, become friends with them, become family ultimately, and not feel like I'm excluded from every holiday and every birthday um, because their partner just doesn't want to meet their other sweetie. Um, that may work for other people, but I know that doesn't work for me. So a lot of it is just learning what works for you. And if somebody has different interests that, and there's no crossover in your interests, then it may, may not, you know, you may just have a really hot sexual relationship, and that's okay too. But as long as we're making a conscious choice about uh, the types of relationships we want to have and, you know, really tuning into ourselves and making sure that we're, matching up with somebody who meets our particular need because everybody does open relationship in their own unique way. There's no rule book. There's no, you know, finite set of ways. Every single person has their own unique style. I think once you step outside the the model, the dominant paradigm, then the sky's the limit. And you can design it however you want, but you just have to be in tune with what you want and be honest and not come from a desperate place where you're just going to accept anything. Yeah, I, I I agree. And I appreciate that you say that. And, you know, I was listening to one of your other podcasts, um, uh, you know, where you were talking, I think you and the individual were talking about um, the kind of spectrum of open relationships, right? And there are kind of mm-hmm. some some stuff that's like really closed and some stuff that's really uh, open, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, I think I approach this more from the perspective of a buffet, like that there are so mm-hmm. many nuances to how we do relationships, right? Whether it's a don't ask, don't tell policy or not, whether um, we have sex with other people, whether we uh, have romantic relationships with other people, whether we see people together. Um, And so I think of it more of like a, you know, choose from this giant, beautiful menu. And I believe that all relationships need to do that, right? That like, I think that every new relationship needs to start that, even if they think it's going to be a monogamous one, those conversations are still important. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So before we run out of time, I want to ask you, are there any resources that you'd like to see for the LGBTQ community but aren't, but don't cur- currently exist? <laughs> yes. Um, so honestly, what I haven't seen and I really want to are resources for navigating issues of abuse and assault within open relationships mm-hmm. and those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you do if you are told or start to think that your partner is abusing another partner? What do you do when you're experiencing violence um, and it's affecting your other relationships, right? I, I left my home state because I had, um, at the time, a long-term relationship um, that, that at the time I considered my primary relationship that was being severely impacted by a three-year abusive relationship with another person. Um, and, and it really messed things up, right? And my ability to, to show up for my primary partner was really affected. Um, what do you do when you notice your own healthy, uh, excuse me, unhealthy patterns and behaviors? Like if you're noticing that in one relationship, how do you not only address it in that relationship, but be honest and transparent in your other connections? How do accountability processes work um, around abuse and assault um, within open relationship situations, within polyamory. And I don't think that we have fantastic models for that. And I don't think that we have uh, great resources for that yet. 
Right, and I was also thinking when you were talking earlier about just the danger of, of violence that trans people um, have to constantly be vigilant about, and when you were talking about how some people may not be out, and if they're in a poly polypod of some sort, and their lover mm-hmm. tells their other lover that the person is trans, they could be at risk of violence from that other partner. Yeah, yeah, you bring up a fantastic, well, not fantastic, but a really hard point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's great. Um, let's hope that uh, those services and that support, um, it, it becomes more available soon. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, Lyndon, and I really want to appreciate you for being on the show. I really enjoyed your point of view and all the education that you offered us, so thank you. Absolutely, thank you. And before we go, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can reach you if they'd like to partake of your training and consulting, and I believe you also have a gift for our listeners. Yeah, so, um, you know, certainly uh, I travel um, all around the country doing trainings on LGBTQ related stuff. And most often that is transgender specific related work. Um, But also if you've got a poly group um, locally and you want to do something specific for that group, um, I'd love to work with you. Uh, So um, you may contact me at lindenconsultingservices.com. That's Lyndon, L-Y-N-D-O-N, like the former president. LyndonConsultingServices.com. And uh, what I'd like to offer to the listeners um, is a free consultation to um, look at what we may be able to do for you or your group um, and uh, take it from there. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. That's very generous of you. Okay, well, I am going to sign off with you and talk to our listeners for a few more minutes. And I, again, appreciate you being on the show, Lyndon, and I wish you all the best. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. So next, next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, we'll be speaking with Jet Noor, who is an African-American burlesque performer. Uh, he will be performing in an all-black burlesque review called Black Manarchy uh, coming up, I believe it's this Friday night, and then we'll have him on the show next Tuesday. Um, they are a sizzling, sexy group of of men, um, straight, straight men, gay men, queer men, um, the whole spectrum, and they're just loud and proud and beautiful and amazing and polyamorous. <laughs> Many of them are polyamorous. I know Jet is. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with him. So please join us next week, Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, and we'll talk to you then.